1: what's up everybody welcome into the guilty as Charged podcast we are live in person <laughs> we got the chris collingsworth slide going on from tyler uh you know tyler and i have known each other for about four years now and this is the first time that we have met in person so we're really excited got a fun episode planned for you guys today
2: uh tyler how you doing man I'm doing well. They thought I was here for their dry cleaning or to draw some Chinese food or something. So they almost didn't let me in. But thankfully, you know, Stephen recognized me and I got in here. But it's going great. Happy to be here in Newport Beach. And uh, yeah, we'll see how this goes. Yeah,
1: it's gonna be really fun, really interesting. Obviously, we had to do uh, us next to each other instead of separate computers, but it's all good. Uh, Alex, how are you doing today, man?
3: I'm um, doing pretty good. And so, yeah, two, two out of three ain't bad. Hopefully one day distant in the future, we can make that three out of three. But, uh, yeah. you know, that's for another time.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, like I said, uh, we have a fun episode planned for you guys today. We are going to jump right now to an interview with uh, Jeff Duncan, who wrote the Drew Brees and Sean Payton book that I have talked about ad nauseum at this point. So that the audio version of that is going to happen right now. And uh, then after that, we're going to get to some questions that Alex posted on Twitter. So here is Jeff Duncan. Hey, guys, welcome back to the Guilty as charged podcast. Very happy, happy to be joined by a very special guest, the, uh, ath- the writer of Peyton and Breeze, the men who built the greatest offense in NFL history. He also writes for The Athletic. Jeff Duncan is here with me. Jeff, thanks for joining. Me. How are you doing today, man?
4: Steven, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about uh, our conversation today.
1: I'm very excited as well. And, and those who listen to the podcast know that, you know, I've been reading this book for the last you know couple of weeks and uh, talking about it and trying to soak up everything that I can. So really excited to have the author and, and the, the brain behind it all and, and talk about this. So before we get into like any of the specifics, where can people find the book? And you know, like what is what has kind of been the feedback for you since it got published?
4: Well, the easy way to get it, you know, you actually go to my, my Twitter handle, probably the easiest way uh, at Jeff Duncan underscore. I had to put the underscore on the end, Stephen, because some guy's squatting on the at Jeff Duncan uh, (laughs) account out in California. Never tweets. He just has the, has the handle, tried to buy it from him. Can't get it. So the underscore on the end, but you can get personalized signed copies. If you just go to my Twitter account, uh, Kind of a nice way if you want to get one for a gift. If you're a Chargers fan, want we'll to learn more about the offense that Joe Lombardi is going to be bringing in. Uh, just reach out to me that way. Or easiest way, just go on Amazon. The Giant uh, of course has plenty of them there and you can order them online. Right. Get it for a couple of days. And the feedback has been great. Uh, just unsolicited the other day, I, I was I was shocked uh, Tom Crean, the basketball coach at University of Georgia, of course, was oh, wow. in Indiana, uh, tweeted out uh, about uh, what a great book it is for leadership and synergy mm-hmm. for coaches i've had a lot of coaches the last few days buy copies that they want to give to their staff so i think there's a lot of lessons in the book besides just you know the the breeze peyton angle uh, you learn a lot about uh you know uh, like like coach said leadership synergy work ethic a lot of the intangibles that go into uh not just football but i think business people would find some yeah. principles and practices in there that they could apply to their workspaces
1: I always think, you know, in any profession, right, if you're always trying to better yourself, like, why not study the brightest minds in other professions and see if you can take some things away from them? So, what was kind of, or, or I guess, when did you know that you had to write a book like this? And what was the collaboration process like with Sean and Drew that led to it being published?
4: Well, both those guys came out with books after the Super Bowl season in 2009. Each, each of their books were New York Times bestsellers. They were both terrific. I know the, the authors of both those books, and they did a wonderful job telling their stories. But there' been a lot happened since then. I mean, it's been over a decade right. since the Saints had won a Super Bowl and Drew's star had really taken off, Of course, won all these uh, awards, uh, you know broke all these records. And I just became more and more fascinated at the Saints' offensive prowess, how it, it just continued to evolve. Uh, They continued to kind of rewrite the NFL record book, and it just felt like the time to do it. I knew Drew's career was kind of coming to an end, and it just felt like uh, there was more to be written there as opposed to just the Super Bowl story. Uh, And so I approached both guys uh, the year before the book came out and asked them if they would be interested in collaborating on it. I couldn't, of course, journalistically, there would be a conflict of interest if I went into business with them as a... Uh, writing a book with them but I asked them if I chose journalistically to write a book on the offense and on their uh, both their lives and, and you know kind of roles in the offense if they would uh, participate and because I'd known both them so so long and covered them their entire tenures here I'd built up a good enough relationship that they agreed to do that and I was really fortunate because they gave me a lot of access and uh, I think it came across in the book.
1: I definitely think that came across in the book. I love all the collaborative quotes just from everybody that's involved. You know, Dan Campbell has some stuff in there. Joe Lombardi has some stuff in there. Um, Before we get to Lombardi, I kind of want to know, you know, you studied the roots of this offense. You know, for our listeners who, you know, maybe don't necessarily understand the X's and O's that much. Where does Sean Payton get the roots of this offense from and and kind of how has it evolved over the last 15 years that he's been in New Orleans?
4: Well, most of it is West Coast offense based and that really stems from his first job in the NFL was on Ray Rhodes' Eagles staff and he was an offensive assistant under John Gruden. So John Gruden is a heavy influence on Sean Payton uh, X's and O's wise, offensive philosophy, is basically rooted in the West Coast system. And you can see a lot of that when you watch the Saints play and as your, uh, your audience watch, starts watching the Chargers and Joe Lombardi, I think you'll see a lot of the old West Coast system that dates back to kind of Bill Walsh in mm. those days. Uh, it hasn't really changed a lot. Uh, mainly that is terminology based, uh, but as years went on and Sean Payton kind of got involved with, uh, he went to Bill Parcell's staff, In Dallas. That's really where Sean will tell you he learned how to be a head coach and how to run a program and all the things that go with being an NFL head coach in this modern era, Uh, you know, dealing with the media, dealing with the general manager, the owner, all those things he learned from Parcells. So really his two major influences are Parcells and Gruden and the X's and O's part would be Gruden. And as years went along, and we detail this a lot in the book, Uh, It really kind of took on the Saints offense, took on a life of its own. And a lot of that was because they had this incredible unprecedented stability with the head coach, the quarterback, Pete Carmichael, the offensive coordinator, Joe Lombardi, the quarterback's coach, uh, uh, CJ Johnson, Curtis Johnson, the receivers coach. They've all been in this system for a decade and a half. It's highly unusual at the NFL level. So they were able to kind of add all these layers to the offense to where now I think it's really its own entity. It's really not anything. There's really nothing like it probably in the NFL right now. Yeah. One of the
1: things that you write about in here is that stability and how Sean Payton kind of takes care of his assistants. And I just think it's so curious because, you know, we see all these Shanahan assistants every single year. One is getting plucked to be the head coach but Carmichael's never been a head coach in the NFL. Joe Lombardi has been an offensive coordinator, but not a head coach. Is it really just as simple as Sean Payne takes care of them? Or or why do you think these assistants, obviously Dan Campbell now has a job with the lions, but why do you think it's not kind of branched out the way that, you know, the Shanahan system is doing right now in the NFL?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think this is a great situation here. They've uh, really fostered a great culture. Uh, in the organization. That's from the top down, ownership down, Gail Benson. Uh, They really do have a hands-off ownership style, so the football people are allowed to run the building. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're really not uh, interfered with at all from that level. Same with Mickey Loomis. Mickey Loomis empowers uh, his his people under him, Sean Payton, Jeff Ireland, uh, doesn't really meddle in in their uh, work. And I think that really uh, is attractive to coaches, And Sean Payton has, I think over the years, uh, become a very good head coach. He doesn't micromanage as much as he used to. He'll be the first to tell you that. And this is a tremendous place to work. I mean, the the team's been very successful. New Orleans is a great place to live. And then the other thing is, I think some of the assistants uh, under Sean uh, know what they are. I mean, Pete Carmichael, I don't know if he'll ever be a head coach in the league. I think he's a tremendous coordinator but I think he understands his strengths and weaknesses and is content with being an offensive coordinator at this level and maybe not being a head coach. Uh, and some of the other coaches on the staff as well, they're they not going to leave unless it's the very perfect opportunity because they know it's so good here. And there's such stability uh, with Sean Payton who take, takes care of these guys.
1: Well, that, that obviously is a great lead up to, you know, talking about Joe Lombardi, who's going to be bringing in this offense, um, what can you tell our listeners about Joe? Uh, you know, as a person, and and you know how he's kind of um, you know grown as a coach in his time in New Orleans.
4: Well, first thing, there's a couple things that strike you first when you meet Joe. One, he's extremely intelligent. I mean, he comes from an Air Force background, very sharp, as most of the coaches on the Saints staff are. I mean, these guys have a very complicated, uh, sophisticated offensive system. Mm-hmm. And they are teachers, first and foremost. And you really realize that quickly when you talk to Joe Lombardi. Uh, he could be a teacher in a school, I think, would be uh, just as good as he is as a head coach. Uh, the other thing is extremely polite, nice guy. And now that doesn't mean he doesn't have an edge to him. But, you know, the father in Joe Lombardi comes out, Comes out. he's got a brood of kids. I, forget, I think he's got like six or seven kids. I mean, he's, we all kid him. <laughs> I don't know how he has enough time to be a dad and an NFL assistant coach, uh, but he's very proud of his family. spends a lot of all of his free time away from the football stadium with his family, and I've always respected and admired that about the way he carries himself as a, as a parent and a husband. So he's just a good person overall. But also, I think he's learned uh, over the years. You know that first experience in Detroit when he was offensive coordinator there did yeah. not go the way he wanted. And I think he's really eager to run an offensive system again and show that he's learned from some of the mistakes he made there. And I think he's really excited about being there in LA with uh, Brandon Staley, his staff, I know he respects him. And I know he's excited about working with Justin Herbert, uh, tremendous young talent. I think he sees an opportunity there the way Sean Payton did with Drew Brees here in the early stages of their tenure in New Orleans.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you happen to see, but, you know, Drew happened to go out uh, to practice a couple of weeks ago when they were doing OTAs. And that was really fun for, you know, all of us Chargers fans to see Drew back in uh, back with the Chargers and being able to talk with Justin Herbert. And um, you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but how do you think this offense will fit around Justin Herbert? Because (laughs) I mean, no shade to Drew, but like the different skill set is very obvious between him and Justin Herbert. So, how do you think Lombardi is going to kind of shape this offense uh, around Justin Herbert, who's a very different quarterback than Drew Brees
4: is? Well, that's exactly what he's going to do, Stephen. He's going he's to mold the offense around the skill set of his personnel, starting with the quarterback, Justin Herbert. That's what they did in New Orleans. I think that's one of the things that's a little bit uh, mischaracterized here. I think people think the offense in New Orleans is what it is because of Drew Brees, and actually they fit, they retrofit the offense around Drew Brees' skill set. It's going to yeah. be completely different here now with Jameis Winston or Taysom Hill, just as it was when Teddy Bridgewater quarterbacked him and and Taysom Hill last year. Uh, they, that's what good coaches do. I mean, they they they're not going to force a round peg into a square hole to use that tired cliche. So he's going to take his system and run it uh, based around what Justin Herbert does best. And there's going to be a lot of give and take between him and Joe Lombardi and probably some trial and error there, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. It's probably not going to be perfect right off the bat. It's going to take some time. I mean, this New Orleans offense, if you go back and look at it in 2006, it wasn't dynamic early on. I mean, they were scoring in the 20s. It took really two full years, 2008. That second half of the 2008 season where it really started to take off. And then of course they won the Super Bowl in 2009. It took a a good amount of time to figure out the personnel that they wanted and also how best Drew Brees operated in the system and what he liked. And I think there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve, uh, in LA as well. But I do think, uh, Joe Lombardi is excited about the talent. I mean, if you've got talent like that, there's a lot of good clay to mold. And I think, uh, they will figure it out because uh, it starts with the ability at quarterback. And I think it's uh, off the charts with Justin Herbert. I mean, we saw that last year when he came in here. I mean, he mm-hmm. made some plays that everyone in the press box was just like, oh my gosh, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is yeah. a elite, elite player. And I think the sky's the limit.
1: Yeah. You know, that that New Orleans game, for me, I, I feel like it was when things really started to click for Justin uh, in terms of being a consistent playmaker in the league, because I think he showed flashes, obviously the first few games, but I think in new Orleans was his true, like, okay, I can do this on this drive. I can do that on this drive. I can do this on this drive. Um, and that's something that Drew Brees has has done forever as well as just be that consistent, you know, quarterback, consistent play caller every single week, you knew what you were going to get with him. Is that something that I guess you can improve upon as at the quarterback position? Like, where can Justin Herbert improve upon, you know, obviously his physical skills are, you know, very notable, very obvious, but from a mental standpoint, do you think like, how can he improve from a mental standpoint, I guess is what I'm asking.
4: Well, I I think that's where Joe Lombardi can really help him by being around Drew Brees, you know, a first ballot hall of famer, seeing how he prepares. And that's something that definitely comes across in the book. I think one of the more fascinating (laughs) parts of it for me was just, seeing how drew Brees works i mean it's extraordinary right. the amount of work he puts in to a given week game plan and i think uh, again going back to what we talked about earlier anyone can learn from that uh, anyone in any line of work students when you see someone that's achieved at the level drew Brees has and is still applying himself not taking shortcuts after all these years and and success uh, you know it's a really good life lesson and i think those are the kind of principles that uh, Joe Lombardi can convey to Justin. I think it's going to take time to get there. I mean, that stuff doesn't come overnight. But I'll tell you one other thing I wanted to say, though, that I think goes back to your question about how the offense will, will, will work. I-, I think back to maybe some of your old school listeners, old school Chargers fans will remember when Robert Meacham left New yeah, Orleans probably. and went to, went to the Chargers, and it didn't really pan out very well. I talk in the book about that. Why Joe Lombardi is actually the one that, that told me the stories about that. And he said the Chargers were trying to make him into a receiver, like a number one receiver, something mm-hmm. he was not. And in New Orleans, they only had Meacham run certain routes because they knew he couldn't run. He couldn't break down and make cuts into transitions. He had to run these go routes, uh, you know, these over routes and things where he kind of what he described it to me was like routes where he didn't have to stop and start. Yeah, or maybe be more like rounding second on your way to third in baseball. Uh, they knew that that was how he operated best. They never asked him to run any other routes like that, and that's what they do with all the receivers here in New Orleans. Early in camp, all the new receivers they have them run every route on the route tree over and over. They film it obviously at practice, and the offensive coaches watch it and they figure out what routes fit certain receivers, and then they tailor the offensive system to those receivers and they'll never ask a receiver to run a route that is not suitable for their talent. And I think the same thing will apply to every other offensive position uh, with the Chargers when Joe Lombardi's there. They're going to figure out which passes Joe uh, Justin Herbert can make, which ones he doesn't feel comfortable yet. And they'll put those into the game plan each week and those will form the core of the Chargers offense each week. And it'll it'll change week to week depending on the opponent and their weaknesses.
1: Yeah, you know, I I definitely had a chuckle reading that little bit about Robert Meacham. Um, You know, obviously, as a Chargers fan, I I do remember, you know, the good old days when everybody thought that Meacham was going to be, you know, the number one receiver. So it definitely brought a chuckle to my face, you know, when when I read that little bit about him. Um, You talk about the receivers, Joe Lombardi actually said something that caught a lot of our attention, you know, among Chargers fans is that he seems to think or is planning for Mike Williams to play you know the Michael Thomas X position. and when he was hired all of us just kind of assumed that that would be Keenan Allen you know similar skill set similar build what does he mean by that like is Mike Williams going to be running those kind of shorter intermediate routes that Michael Thomas does I know you just said that you know the whole thing is you know build upon the player's skill sets but You know, hearing that Mike Williams, who's primarily been a jump ball guy, is going to be their version of Michael Thomas definitely was a a curious comment for us.
4: Yeah, I saw those comments and I felt the same way because when I've been out to those joint practices with Chargers and Saints the last few years, I mean, Keenan Allen just jumps off the field. I mean, his talent, uh, he's every bit as talented, I think, as, as Mike Thomas in running those routes. He's such a precise route runner. Great hands, competitive. Uh, He would seem to me the exact version of Mike Thomas out there. But I don't know if that's him trying to boost up maybe psychologically Mike Williams to Mm. get him involved and understand that they want him to play a big role. I could see him running some of the intermediate routes that Thomas excelled at. But Thomas's bread and butter here were these slant routes, these short, you know, these dig routes, things where he can use his frame and his incredible hands. He's got, just vice-like hands, same way Keenan Allen does. And those, as you know, in the NFL, separation might be three feet to get open against these tremendous athletes at at cornerback. So you're going to have to make a lot of competitive catches. And maybe that's what he means because Williams does have a big frame that -hmm. they can use that skill set and that body type uh, on some of these short routes. But I'm thinking Williams is going to be Justin Herbert's big play guy. That's what I think. So it may (laughs) be... Maybe he's planting a seed that uh, psychologically because he he is prone to that. That's one thing Joe Lombardi does. He plays a lot of mind games in a positive way through some of his media comments. I think just planting a seed with his players.
1: Well, that's that's good to know. I think all of us were like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's been great. great learning.
4: Let it it play out in practice. I think I think it'll play differently uh, once they get on the practice field. It'll be interesting to see.
1: Yeah, and we were talking beforehand about the dead period. I think everybody's kind of just overanalyzing everything right now. So uh, training camp's a few weeks away, so hopefully we'll be able to, um, you know, get our eyeballs on this team and see how everything works. And I'm so excited to see, you know, how everything pans out with this team because I think with Phillip Rivers, there was always just – it maybe was a little different tweaks here and there, but the system was never completely overhauled like it's going to be with, you know, Brandon Staley and Joe Lombardi. So very, very excited um about that so jeff this has been great i hope our our listeners have been able to learn a lot i certainly have what do you have coming up obviously training camp is coming up in a few weeks so what do you have what can uh, our listeners look out for you and uh where can they find your your information at
4: well look i'm I'm getting ready to start training camp as well i'm switching jobs actually i'm going back to the times picayune here in new orleans Mm. which is where i worked for 20 years so i'll start back at the picayune for football and training camp uh, had a great run at the Athletic, loved it. Uh, I'm really excited to get back, kind of covering the New Orleans area on a local level. So I start back there, uh, starting in, in in hellish Louisiana heat <laughs> for training camp. I mean, I loved, Stephen, we, we three years the Saints went up to West Virginia for camp uh, in Green, the Greenbrier Hotel and White Sulphur Springs. It was such a nice break from the heat down here. Literally. So I'm, I'm team Greenbrier, man. I'd love to go back, but uh, (laughs) I'll be out in Metairie at the uh, at the Stalag, uh, sweating my tail off at at practice, but I'm excited about it. So uh, yeah, anybody can reach out to me if they want to get a copy of the book. If not, uh, you can order one at Amazon. I also think there's a lot more things in there you'll learn about the offense, about how they're going to incorporate all five, you know, skill position players in almost every offensive play and a lot of stuff on the blocking schemes and how they protect the quarterback. There's a lot of X's and O details in there, I think people will find fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, if, if we had the time, we, you know, we could talk for, you know, an, an hour about this book, but, you know, definitely don't want to give away all the secrets. So definitely Chargers fans, go check that out. Again, that's Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in NFL History, written by Jeff Duncan. Jeff, thank you so much. Have
4: a good one. Yeah, thanks for having me on. appreciate it.
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
4: All right, so let's get to these questions.
1: We're really excited about all these questions. There was uh, quite a few that I'm particularly interested in um the first one is coming from bold Brett, a friend of the podcast who obviously has helped us out with a lot of these youtube graphics and things like that um, he wants to know can brandon staley's scheme cover up the lack of depth when the starters inevitably get hurt so alex we'll start with you on that one uh what are your thoughts here
3: i think that it, it can potentially um cover-up is maybe the wrong term. I think it can lessen the effects of it. Um, But yeah, look, at the end of the day, if Michael Davis or Derwin James or a lot of those high-end starters go down, uh, you are asking for a lot anyway, (laughs) and then it's probably not going to be good. But I do think if, say, you know, can they survive a week or two without Uchenna and Wosu? Maybe, right? Can they survive a week or two without you know, maybe Chris Harris, if he were to get injured, I think so. Um, but again, any injury to really the high tier starters uh, at every level of the defense. And I, I don't really think you can cover it up. But again, I think Staley's scheme can kind
2: of lessen the impact of it. Yeah, I think the Chargers will do the best they can. If they lose guys, that's fine. That's not fine. But like, I think Staley can do the best <laughs> with what he has. But at the end of the day, just the lack of talent is there, is not there. The lack of talent is there. So they're not going to be able to work together. Gosh, it's so weird sitting next to a <laughs> person who just looked at me. It's really creepy. <laughs> but um, can they cover it up? No. Can they do without some players? No. But they'll do the best they can. And if anyone can do it, it's daily.
1: Yeah, I think to, there's some extent of this, right? Like losing Joey Bosa, Derwin James is obviously going to be very difficult. But if you have a couple of games without a Sunday Samuel Jr. or Chris Harris, I think that's much more manageable. Um, You know, we've talked about the depth of linebacker. I think that's the spot that you can kind of mix things up a little bit. I I don't know how much you lose uh, if Drew Tranquil is out and you're starting Kaiser White, for example. So I think that in particular is a position where they can uh, cover some things up. Um, Next question from Trevor Black. Who is starting outside corner week one? I think he means specifically opposite of Michael Davis. Yeah. Um, Obviously, I think most people – kind of assume that's going to be the case so Tyler who do you think is uh going to start opposite of Michael Davis starting week one
2: you gave me the tough one uh Asante Samuel Jr next question
3: (laughs) I I would think it's going to be Asante Samuel Jr um unless we see maybe some signs in the preseason of him not looking great but I don't think that's going to happen to me You drafted this guy with a, you know, mid second round pick. I think they envisioned him starting from the beginning, but of course what we've heard about Brandon Faison is him getting those first team reps uh, at outside corner. So it wouldn't shock me if he started week one, but I would be pretty surprised if Asante Samuel Jr. were to have a relatively good preseason and it would still be the case that Faison was starting. So if I had to put up odds on it, I'd probably say like 80% Samuel, probably 20% face on. But I think inevitably what's going to happen is that Samuel is going to win that job, whether it's by week one or not, yeah. I don't know, but I think it's you know, pretty clearly that's what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, that should absolutely be the expectation. Um, we've seen some coaches kind of prefer to bring their rookies along slow. You know, even Gus Bradley and Anthony Lynn didn't mm-hmm. start Derwin right away, and obviously those expectations for him were much higher than they were going to be for Asante Samuel Jr. Um, so Brandon on starting week one would not shock me, but I do expect
2: Asante Samuel Jr. to be that guy. It would shock me, I think because, like you said, even the previous coaching staff, they take some time to get their rookies going, but there's always somebody in front of those, particularly a second-round pick. So Hunter Henry had Gates in front of him, and Adderley had Jenkins in front of him, and then most had Ingram in front of him. Like, face-on being in front of Samuel Jr. is just a little speed bump. That's not exactly what right. him getting on the field. So, yeah, um, yeah I, think he, I think he has to start week one.
3: And I would say the other difference is, you know, in comparison to last year where, you know, you did have kind of that 2020, no preseason, right? That might be more of a situation. Obviously, we saw Justin Herbert was sitting behind Tyrod Taylor. Um, if Asante Samuel Jr. didn't have multiple preseason games, we're talking specifically three to show off his stuff, um, I think there would be a better chance that he uh, face on would start from the beginning, but I think there's less of a chance of it happening this year.
1: Yeah, those are good points for sure. Um, next question. We've got a couple variations of this one. So we'll kind of mm-hmm. uh, tackle this in one. Uh, this comes from at TT underscore eight, five, zero. He says, I'm a huge Brandon Staley fan, but if we don't see immediate success or at least a positive difference, how much patience should Chargers Fans have. We're going to perform now, League C2a versus Herbert, for example. So, we've all, the three of us have kind of talked about being patient in year one and things could take, you know, a, a long time to get them really into rhythm with these new schemes. So, I mean, if the Chargers go like seven and 10, then maybe there's some kind of concern, but I'm mostly looking for growth throughout the season, right? Like, if they stay, if they start two and four, and then they kind of figure it out, like, I think that's fine, you know. So I think there should be patience throughout the season with the end goal in mind of, you know, improving from week to week and, and hopefully being, you know, a completely different team in Week 17 than they are in Week 1.
3: Right. I think if you're just talking about purely, like, because because the question is kind of phrased in, like, oh, if we don't see results this year and say the Chargers go 7-10 and 10 again, or uh, if it's kind of a, mm, let's say they underperform and they're five and 11, six and, uh, fuck, five and 12, uh, six and 11. If they're that kind of team, then, you know, is there a potential that he's fired maybe at that point? But I think really, I mean, they just really gave Tom Telesco uh, a new coaching hire, and because of that, I think they'd be kind of willing to wait things out. Um, I also think it's a matter of how does the team look as opposed to any other record, right? Because we saw look, Anthony Lynn won his last four games last year. Um, and if you just, you know, looked at the records and were like, hey, this team was five and eleven in twenty nineteen, and then they went seven and nine with a rookie quarterback. Like if you just told those facts to somebody straight up, you know, then it would be like, Well, actually maybe we should keep them. But then, you know, you get into all of the reasons that the season played out that way how Justin Herbert looked, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's not really a record that I want to put on it, but, you know, it's sort of hard to say what Staley's job security would be in kind of any kind of simulations you create, right? Because you can probably create some kind of seven and 10 season where, you know, Brandon Staley's able to keep his job and you can create some kind of eight and nine season where he were to lose his job, right? Depending on... What would happen? So uh, ultimately, I think at the end of the day that his job is pretty safe, given the fact that they allowed Telesco to hire another coach. So unless they're really bad, I, I don't see any world in which he gets fired. In, in most simulations, if we want to say,
2: yeah, I think the pressure and we might talk about this in a bit is more on Tom Telesco. Steely, I think is totally fine, unless the Chargers organization is somehow now an organization that fires guys immediately. There's nothing about their history that suggests that he's a one and done right. sort of guy. And- Actually, I just met with Arjun on Friday and we were talking about this and he doesn't think Staley's a one and done guy kind of guy either just because of the organization and because of the coach he is. Um, but it will be a bit damning if his record is worse than Anthony Lynn's. Now, granted, was it that really Anthony Lynn's reason that they, was Anthony Lynn the reason that they went seven or nine and won the last four games? Not really. It was all Justin Herbert. But, you know, if Staley's record, at least the win-loss percentage, is lower than what Anthony Lynn had, I think Chargers fans are going to be a little bit antsy. And I, I couldn't think of why outside of devastating injuries. And for that reason, even if that's the reason, if it's devastating injuries, then you have to keep him because right. it's not his fault. So as long as the offensive line has shown improvement, because they invested a lot in that. And as long as the defense is showing that, you know, they're pressuring more, they're blitzing more, and that there's some improvement there, it's okay. I think as long as they stay about even, I'm fine, because there's so much turnover there's so many new players. All the coaches are different. The stadium, the fans, everything is going to be so different this year. As long as they're the same, I'm okay. It's just going backwards. I think I'd be worried. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally
1: fair. If you're a little worried, you know, if you're a little antsy, and obviously I know that there's going to be people going to freaking out if the Chargers are, you know, seven and 10 again. But, you know, I, I can't imagine there's a world that Brandon Staley is fired after the end of this year. It's just not the Chargers mantra. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom Telesco, that's that's another case. So this was kind of the the other variation of this question. What would have to happen for Telesco to lose his job at the end of this year?
3: Oh man, I um, mean, I, I think it would have to be a really bad record. B, I, I don't know, maybe Rashawn Slater looks bad. Like I, you would have to add, I think, a bunch of things on top of each other yeah. for Telesco to lose his job. Um, yeah, so I mean, they just gave him another coaching hire, and this is why I say, you know, to me, the job securities of Staley and Telesco aren't that different because, to me, if you're firing Staley, you're also like firing that. Telesco, right? You're not going to give Telesco a fourth coaching hire um, of his of his tenure. Like, I, I can't really imagine any situation on the football field where where that would be the case. Um, or you know maybe there's some kind of locker room thing that happens, but you know we don't really have any information that would suggest that's a problem. But yeah, to me, you know I, I think they're pretty much linked uh, at this point. If it works out with Tom Telesco, that help will have meant that it works out with Brandon Staley. I don't think there's many you know uh, worlds where you can see going forward where. Brandon Staley is, uh, sorry, Tom Telesco is fired, but Brandon Staley's not just because, you know, it says they're coaching hire. So I think it would be both of them that would go in that that case.
2: Yeah, I don't know how I could put this into words, but basically I I disagree. I I totally think there's a world where where Telesco is fired and Staley isn't. I think at some point, like, they're going to have to find a scapegoat to have to fire. And I thought that was going to be the case with Gus Bradley last season, mid-season. And I guess they didn't do that. So maybe based on their history, they won't scapegoat a guy. Unless you count Ken Wilson. Hunt as that, but that was a. Odd situation that we don't know a whole lot about. Um, it, I think he, the only reason he'd be fired, of course, injuries is a thing. But it's if everything that came before Staley didn't work out, and all the gambles that he took on players that he you know, thought were going to be good, it just didn't work out. If Mosu just gets hurt and doesn't pan out, utterly does not pan out, then yeah, I think I think that maybe then he'll be uh, fired. But we'll see. If, if they go five and eleven or five and 12, <laughs> or 4 and <laughs> thirteen. Oh my gosh, we're all educated. I don't know why we can't figure this <laughs> out. Um, I don't know. I think at some point they're going to have to look for some sort of answers because, I don't know. It, it also depends on how much they think that Staley is running the show now versus Telesco. If they think, and if the organization knows that Staley is actually really doing all these moves and a lot of what we've seen is because Staley has so much power and they really don't need Telesco and they can get rid of him anyway and still maintain kind of the same direction of the organization, then maybe, then there's a guy that works better with Staley. But that's, that's really all I can think of. Yeah, those are, those are fair points. I I think it would take like some kind of disaster
1: season for Telesco to be fired. I think like Alex has kind of talked about, you know, him and Staley are kind of tied together, and also like finding Justin Herbert, yeah, yeah. is something that typically gives GMs you know a larger window and, and some more career longevity. So we'll see. I, I think it would take a couple seasons of underperforming for Telesco to be fired.
3: The, the only kind of reason that I, I say that they're tied together is, you know, even if you're saying like, okay, Brandon Staley has the power in that organization, you know, like in Tyler's hypothetical, do you then want to bring in a GM who's really not a GM for Brandon Staley, yeah. right? Or somebody like that, that not GM job becomes less attractive. Um, I don't I tend to think that's the case. I think Tom Telesco is the guy making the moves, obviously, with input from Brandon Staley. Um, but yeah, to me, and this is just the process of hiring a new GM, most new GMs, when they come to a job, they want to hire a coach too. Right. Which is why a lot of organizations clean house. There are exceptions to that rule, you know, all the time in in the NFL or the NBA. But to me, um, if you are firing the GM, then I think it's, it's gotta be clean house at that point, but that's just kind of my viewpoint on it.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Alex. So our next question is from at I'm That Dude 619. He wants to know about MK Eggboule and if we think he can be a surprise player for the Chargers this year. Um, it wouldn't have to take an injury. Like I, I yeah. think he's shown very minimal flashes where I'm okay with him as like the fifth pass rusher on the team. But if Bosa and Wosu and Fackerel and Rump are all healthy like those are the four guys that are going to be rushing the passer more often. I, I just think that until someone goes down in front of him, he's going to be a special teams guy. And, and right. Like that's important. The chargers need players like him to, to kind of take that next step as a special teams player. And if he's able to really show positive signs there, then, you know, he'll stay on the field and he'll stay on the roster. But as a pass rusher, like it's going to take an injury, probably two injuries for him to get on the field and to take meaningful snaps for this team.
3: Right. I mean, there's a difference between him making the roster, which we've talked about and him being a true breakout player. Um, You know, I I think there's a chance he makes the roster, although I think we predicted that he wouldn't in our roster predictions episode, but there is a world where I think they say, okay, you know, Hey, we are not super comfortable with our edge depth and we'd like to have a fifth guy. Um, You know, I think that can be a delay. And in that case he will get some playing time. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't really see any potential for a breakout season, particularly just because in that scenario, even he's like the fourth, fifth pass rusher, as opposed to you know someone whose position is linebacker, but you know, he's not really going to be playing linebacker. We just have to be as a pass rusher.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree with you guys. He's either going to be the fifth pass rusher, or he's going to be surprised because he stepped onto the field because of injuries. Otherwise, right. like we're either going to not see it coming, or he's just, <laughs> we're going to exactly see what's going to happen, which is, He doesn't step onto the field much. I'm pretty sure he has like 40 pass rush reps in the last two seasons, which is fine. Like they had plenty of edge rushers, but then they bring in, they signed a free agent with the intention of of sort of starting or at least being in the rotation. And then they signed a guy, or excuse me, they drafted a guy who they, in terms of draft position, was ahead of where Egg Bully was drafted two years ago. And it's their guy. So if he's a surprise, great. Like he had a really nice performance against the Saints, three pressures on 17 pass rushes. But otherwise, that's about it. That's kind of it. And that's cool. Like if you're a great special teams contributor, that's no problem. I appreciate that. We all need that. The Chargers need that, but that's kind of it. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm excited to see what
1: that uh, edge rusher group, you know, looks like, right? Because we've talked about, you know, the depth kind of being a concern. And and so we've got to see someone really kind of step up. Maybe I can kind of beat out. (laughs) It's all good. Little table here is a little wobbly. Um, so maybe, maybe Eglay is able to beat out Chris run for this year for some, uh, you know, like 10 pass rush snaps a game. We'll have to see. <laughs> All right. So God. Sorry. We'll, <laughs> we Sorry. we lost connection there for a little bit, you know, adventures of being truly live for once. Um, we'll get to our next question here from Vic Bolt J. He wants to know what we are more excited to watch this season, the offense, defense, or special teams tell me why and tell me the player that you will be watching the most in that position group. So he also says a shout out to his diehard bowl club fam. Um, So yeah, big shout out to them. Tyler, we'll uh, get back to your answer here. Uh, What, what are you saying here?
2: Uh, It's not special teams. So I'm more excited to watch the offensive line, which I know Steven's going to agree with me on because the chargers are not a good offensive line pretty much since I've been a fan of the chargers. And so I'd like to see them have a decent one. I do not know. Like that means like, oh. They had an offensive line. They're really good when they had LT and McNeil and all those guys. Like, I wasn't a huge fan back then. So, sorry. I wasn't like the biggest fan. <laughs> so, I haven't seen like a really good one. Yeah. I Like, the Chargers, as soon as my fandom started, their offensive line sucked. You can blame me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, offensive line would be great. And of course, Derwin James on defense. Yeah. Go ahead,
3: Alex. Yeah. Um, I, I agree kind of with Derwin James. That's actually what I was going to say, kind of in that secondary. Um, and just seeing how the secondary. Secondary, you know, kind of works together as a whole, I think is kind of the most exciting given how, you know, Brandon Staley has found ways to uh, use his secondary uh, players. I think that that's probably going to be the most fun thing to watch uh, on the defense. Like on offense, I think offensive line would be fun. And obviously me and Tyler will be paying intense attention to the kicking battle. Uh, but I think that that will mostly, uh, you know, take place over the course of the season on the line. The offense, I would say secondary, specifically Derwin James for the defense.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really excited to see how this offense comes together and how they're able to kind of build around Justin Herbert and, like Tyler mentioned, the offensive line. But I think for this team to really, you know, reach that true ceiling, you know, Derwin and Joey Bosa have to play, you know, an extended amount of time together. Like, You know, I think the offense has enough talent to kind of, you know, overcome an injury between those two and, you know, be an above average team. But for this team to reach its ultimate goal, like Derwin and Joey Bosa have to stay on the field. So I think that kind of has to be the answer by default, Uh, (laughs) but we'll see. Um, Concerning the offensive line, Drew Doms wants to know, what's the ceiling of this offensive line? Best case scenario, could they be a top five offensive line realistically? So, um, Seth Walder of ESPN, uh, came on with an article projecting, you know, the pass block win rates for all these teams. And, you know, he projected the chargers to finish 22nd, which would obviously be a massive upgrade over last season when they were 31st. Um, but one of the things that he mentioned is that, you know, they, the model's not going to, you know, predict, you know, elite production from a rookie right away. And of course, Brian Belaga, you know, has struggled to stay on the field. And so, I think, obviously, the Chargers will be better this year if the starters are able to kind of stay relatively healthy. I personally think the ceiling is maybe, like, top 10 because I I think they'll have, you know, if Rashawn Slater plays at his ceiling, they'll have two above average to potentially, like, high-level Pro Bowl players in Slater and Lindsley. You know, I I think the is kind of past the point of being a Pro Bowl-level player, but he can definitely be – above average so best case scenario is maybe like top 10 um and then next year if they want to they can you know definitely get like another high level guard potentially move on from blogger get another high level tackle um because this unit's going to take some work to really reach its peak but you know this year if everything goes right i think they can absolutely be a top 10 unit
3: um i'll say that i think they're more top 15 as the ceiling Uh, i think they can definitely kind of be in there top five is a bit of an unrealistic expectation after one year. Um, You know, I think that's something that, you know, two, three years down the road, right? If Slater's playing at a high level and you have Lindsley plus, you know, replacement for Blaga high level guard, right. You can kind of, uh, you know, imagine them in that kind of tier, you know, down the road, I think top 15 would be the ceiling. And look, if they have the 15th best offensive line in the league, that would be, you know, amazing. Right. Just in terms of improvement year over year, they haven't had a top 15 offensive line in probably the last decade. Um, you know, I'd have to go back through the numbers and check, but I'm pretty sure that that checks out. So, um, yeah, uh, to me, that would be kind of the expectation for them this year. Well, um, I should say maybe as an expectation, I think they should be, you know, like, you know, if they were top 20, I think that that would be fine. Uh, you know, or as you said, that ESPN projection had them at around 22 if they're somewhere between 22 and 15, I think that's great. If they're actually, you know, towards the 15 or maybe, you know, really cracking that top 15, that would be, you know, the ceiling.
2: Yeah. Any, any return towards the average or towards the mean of the offensive okay. line is completely fine with me. It's what we say about the special teams. If they go from 32nd to first, great. But if they go <laughs> from 32nd to 20th, that's yeah. great too. Best case scenario, I agree. Top 10 is best case scenario. Top 15 is completely fine with me. That would, I mean, the organization's going the right direction and the move's, generally panned out
1: yeah so i I wrote an article for lafb about this because you know i was just kind of curious to see if there had been any units that have really Mm. you know undergone the kind of you know nuclear option that the chargers have undergone this season um and and one kind of parallel is you know the houston texans um in 2018. yeah well (laughs) in in terms of the (laughs) offensive line it was fine right like in 2018 the texans had you know, the 31st-ranked offensive line, they had five players who were pretty much, you know, um below league average, similar to the Chargers. And then that offseason, they drafted Titus Howard in the first round. They drafted a guard, Max Sharping, in the second round. And then they traded for Laramie Tunsil. So there's there's definitely some parallels there. Um, And in terms of, like, pro football focus, they went from, you know, the 31st to, I think, like, the 12th, if I'm not mistaken. I have to go back mm. and check. So, like, there is some kind of precedence for an, a team undergoing this kind of nuclear option and improving, um, but top five, definitely not. It, that's definitely not realistic.
2: Good pull, Stephen.
1: Thank you. You're welcome.
2: <laughs> high five. Yes,
1: <laughs> first in person high five between me and Tyler, right there on camera. Um, all right, let's get to our next question here from Liam. He wants to know. My buddy and I have this debate all the time: who is better, or who, or who would you rather have? Keenan and Mike Williams, or Juju Smith Schuster and Chase Claypool. Um, who wants to start this one first?
3: I, yeah, I can start with this one. Uh, I think Chase Claypool, if you're comparing him to Mike Williams, he has the much higher ceiling, uh, in my opinion, you know, just over the next three, four years of his career. Um, but the distance between Keenan Allen and Juju Smith Schuster. I mean, I think that was proven by what Juju uh, Juju Smith-Schuster's market was this year. Uh, You know, so, you know, unfortunately for him, he got a one-year deal. Like, that's, you know, and part of that was the market, but I don't think Juju is seen as a consensus top 15 receiver. I think he's kind of one of those guys that's good, but I don't know if you love him as your wide receiver one. Um, I I just think Keenan has much more of that actual kind of skill set that you need, particularly route running we talked about. Um, but yeah, I would rather have Keenan Allen a lot more than Juju's with Schuster and between Mike Williams and Chase Claypool. If you're really making me choose the next four or five years, I'd probably rather have Chase Claypool, but yeah, the the difference between Keenan and Juju is just too much. So I would pick those two.
2: Yeah. Liam, you, you and your buddy, that's a good debate. Like, okay. I like as Chargers fans, I kind of think I'd lean Keenan Allen anyway. And of course you'd rather have the better receiver, uh, of the group, but you know, on the other hand, your buddy is kind of right to assume, I would guess, that these guys are both cheaper and they are younger, yeah. or at least I would assume going to be more stable long-term than someone like Keenan Allen, who's obviously more expensive and slightly older, and then Mike Williams, who can't stay healthy. So I think those other two options are maybe better long-term, but still, I'd rather take the, the group with the better wide receiver.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of sidebar here, did you guys hear the Ben Roethlisberger story that came out recently? uh what story (laughs) he uh apparently he's become addicted to working out and dieting and apparently is in the best shape of his life so
2: wow
3: um, that's the kind of off-season content that they want to put out there (laughs) yeah ben is really gonna lose
2: the weight this year he's still gonna be fat come
3: (laughs) on like yeah but the ben is gonna suddenly turn into lamar jackson you know his last year like okay miss me with that
1: i know it's like i'm glad that it took him until year 18 to figure out how to diet and work (laughs) out um all right next question from nick mondore or mondor uh excuse me if i pronounce that wrong he wants to know our top five favorite players of all time and why he says any team, uh so you can kind of mix it up there uh you want to start with this one or you want me to start with this one
2: you can start okay so
1: i think first and foremost I think my top two would have to be LT and Phillip Rivers. I, I you know, those two were, you know, um, so important to me, you know, falling in love with the sport and being able to really, you know, become a fan of the Chargers specifically. Um, after that, you know, I, I have always really liked Larry Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. I've always been a huge fan of his and being able to kind of watch the way that he conducts himself and just really goes out and, and has. You know, thousand yard season like nobody's business. So I think he's another one I would be inclined to to say um, fourth and fifth. I don't know. That's tough, man. Like I, I, my mind instantly goes to the Chargers players, of course. But you know, if I'm talking outside the Chargers, um, I think Troy Polamalu is is someone mm. that I, I've always loved to watch, and, and his highlights are crazy. And then for number five, I'll say. I have to say an offensive lineman, right? Like that's, that's me. So um, I don't know, man, maybe like Tyron Smith, I guess. I don't know. That's a tough one. I'd have to like really think about it. I didn't read this question until just now. Um, But I I think for sure my top three would be LT, uh, Philip Rivers and Larry Fitzgerald.
2: Thank you for covering this because I literally had to pay for my metered parking that was expiring. So appreciate you, Stephen, for taking that so I could take care of that. Um, yeah, LT and Rivers definitely. Uh One of the reasons I fell in love with the sport, at least watching it, was Peyton Manning. Oh, wow. I also obviously because he's amazing, but also because every time he would play Eli Manning, they would kick the <laughs> shit out of the Giants. And I thought that was so damn funny, and he was just so good and just like, watch this little bro, and just roasted the Giants every time. And I, I love that. So Manning for sure. Uh, I would have thought Fitzgerald, one of my. Like, the first Super Bowls I watched was the Steelers Cardinals Super Bowl. And that really, like, made me, like, oh, my God, this is really exciting. What a good game. And, of course, Larry Fitzgerald was a pretty big part of that. Probably him. I don't know why I can't think of a fifth guy. There's just, like, another fifth guy. Like, I I I kind of – I don't know. Alex, I'll defer to you.
3: All right. Um, Well, okay. Time to be the heel. make the list? (laughs) (laughs) My number one is Brian Dawkins. Um, I think he's just one of the most – fun Eagles players of all time, uh, easily my favorite Eagle. And, you know, just the energy he brought out every weekend. Like, (laughs) I I thought it was funny. Just, you know, he's the only person ever to have left the Eagles as a star uh, and been not booed uh, coming back, (laughs) you know, when he was with the Broncos. Um, But, you know, he just always brought that energy. I think he's my number one. And one of the reasons I love football so much uh, I think Rivers has to make the list. He's my number two, um, just kind of growing up with him also. And, you know, just, just a, you know, a real part of my formative years in football. He was always, you know, high class, all that. And I wish he got that Super Bowl. He didn't, but um, mm-hmm. it kind of is what it is. But, you know, he was always super fun to watch, and you wouldn't want anyone else as kind of your quarterback leader, you know, when we talk about Chargers fans, right? Um, n- number three, I'll go T.O. Uh, I always thought T.O. was super fun to watch. Larry Larry Fitzgerald, personality-wise, is like the complete opposite of (laughs) (laughs) T.O. You know, he's like the the consummate professional guy. T.O. is the loud, you know, sometimes obnoxious, but his play style was super fun at the the wide receiver position. I think, you know, you talk about kind of the top three receivers of all time. You know, I think it's some combination of kind of Rice, T.O., and Moss in in that top three, and I thought T.O. was – the most fun out of those guys to watch um, number three four. Oh yeah. Sorry. Number four. Right. Number four, I'll go LT and mm, to let, wrap the list up. I'll go with, I'll go with Peyton. I think that's a solid one. I think he was always kind of one of the most fun opposing quarterbacks to watch. And, you know, he had a play style and kind of grit to it. And that made me, Just respect him, really. Uh, You know, it's not like Tom Brady where I just hated watching him uh, every single week. So yeah, I guess yeah. So my list would be Dawkins, Rivers, T.O. Going with Peyton at five, and then who did I have it for? L.T. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, L.T. at four. So yeah, those would be nice. Right on,
2: Alex. Um, Okay, I'm gonna go with a really dangerous uh, final fifth person here. It's not going to be a person. Tom Brady. Hell no, that's <laughs> dead blast. That, is, that is the whatever circle of hell that is. If I ever say Tom Brady, just snap my neck. Um, no, it actually would be the opposite. And the reason I don't like him I, as my fifth person, I'm going to pick the Raiders. And I, I that's going to be just genuinely uh, awful. Okay. It's of all time. I'm not saying that I, I'm like a Raiders fan, but I grew up one and I grew up with so much Ken Stabler and Dave Casper. And all these guys and, you know, goes to the post and all these things and the sea of hands game against Miami, right? I can rattle these things off because I grew up as a Raiders fan. Yeah. And so I know some of these so much. And, and that's part of what, you know, started my fandom was watching these, unfortunately, you know, 70s and 80s Raiders highlights because there wasn't much in the last 20 years. <laughs> but watching those with my dad was really cool. So I will say, I guess, like, I feel if I'm going to pick another player, I guess I got to pick, like, some Raiders players. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just say the Raiders. I'm so sorry, Internet. I'm so oh, sorry about the ratio over the last disgusting. two disgusting.
1: <laughs> That's gonna be fun. But I mean, anyone who listens to
2: this show probably knows by now
1: that, you know, Tyler spends thousands and thousands of dollars watching the Chargers. So I think, you know, I think you're fine.
2: And my dad spends thousands and thousands of dollars watching the Chargers, and he's a Raiders fan. So there we go. Come <laughs> some slides.
4: Yes.
1: All right. Next question here from Mike Yeager, who uh recently went to SoFi Stadium in his Rashawn Slater jersey that we gave him. So shout out to Mike. Oh Um, He wants to know what would you guys do with the remaining cap space, Uh, which we've kind of talked about. You know, the Chargers have after these rookies and kind of in-season budget. I think they have about like seven or eight million dollars potentially that they could uh, use to sign somebody if they wanted to. Um, So I've kind of talked about this. I I would really like to see them bring in another safety, potentially another pass rusher. Um, If I had my personal choice, I'd probably take that money towards a pass rusher. You know, Olivier Vernon is still out there. You, know, Everson Griffin is still out there. You know, give them you know a couple million dollars here, maybe three, four million dollars, and, and you know have a true like supplementary pass rusher. Um, of course, that would push you know M. K. Egglee and Chris Rumpf down the depth chart. But I think this team really needs another veteran presence to come off the edge and create some havoc. And Olivier Vernon was actually really, really good last year for the Browns. I, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was better than, um, Jadavion Clowney was last year and Jadavion Clowney is placing him. So, um, hmm. if I could pick one player right now to sign, I think that's what I would choose as a PA All right,
2: I'll go. Um, yeah, I for Aaron um Ball, he says whatever, <laughs> what would you want to do with the cap space? That's what I would do. That's what I'd do with it. Uh, they could use another interior guy here. He's pretty good. Um, he's only the eighth best interior defensive lineman apparently, or sixth best or whatever it was. So, uh, you know, you probably going for really cheap. So yeah, I'd for Aaron Donald. <laughs> well
3: <done>. Okay.
2: Um,
3: <laughs> I think, yeah, I think like Steven said, really at this point, they have about, I actually think it's like 12 or 13 million technically they have left to spend or around 10, but yeah, really at that point, you're talking about depth signings that you can get for yeah. really cheap. And then you're using the rest of the 5 million, you know, or so for in-season signings. Um, You know, we always talk about the safety room and how we don't have enough depth there. I'd sign a guy like a Malik Hooker uh, or somebody that can just, you know, get you some, you know, maybe quality snaps. Or at least if he has to play, I trust a little bit more than a Mark Webb and kind of an Elohi Gilman. So I kind of would uh, rather have him. Uh, But I think Olivier Vernon is a very good answer, too, just because, you know, they could always use that edge help. Um, but the most important thing with this question is really when you talk about the 20 million in official cap space, they have roll it over to next year. Like when we talk about kind of free agency and and then potentially having 50 million, you know, I know a lot of people might be mad that they didn't use the cap space next year, but they do have the ability given Justin Herbert's rookie contract and about the, you know, 45 or 50 million that they'll have projected for next year to kind of do whatever they want. Um, so to me, that's the sort of the primary answer, I guess.
1: Yeah, that seems the likely outcome at this point. Um, All right, what the duck 56. That's hilarious. I love that. Um, He wants to know realistic percentage of snaps each rookie plays this season. Uh, I mean, obviously, best case scenario for Rashawn Slater is 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, it gets a little more interesting, you know, because Asante Samuel Jr., while he should be the starter, could potentially, you know, be taken off the field in favor of other players at certain times. And then Palmer McKitty, I think, you know, after that. So, um, Alex, what do you think? you know i it, it's tough to say like exactly but what kind of range of outcomes are you think are you thinking for uh some of these rookie players for the Chargers
3: yeah i mean Slater should be 100% uh, that's what you would hope for uh aside from him is Samuel Jr i mean if he was really starting from week 1 at the outside i mean he has to play high 80s you know to 100% throughout the whole season now if he were to get benched or something that would change but you know if he's starting from week 1 i expect that to be 85 to 100% out um, and then going down the list, you have Palmer, uh, I believe Tyron Johnson. I just looked this up before the show when I saw this question, but Tyron Johnson had about 22% snaps last year. So you assume that'll go up for Tyron and Jalen Guyton was something around like 15 to 20%. Um, so that'll go up for him. So Palmer, Palmer's kind of tough. Um, I think you could say maybe around 15% of the snaps for him potentially more if he breaks out, but the wide receiver room, unless there's an injury, does have, you know, a lot of guys that need to get the ball. So I would say probably 15 for him. Um, McKitty is going to need to play a little bit more. I'd say 20 to 25, somewhere around there, just because they'll need him as a blocker. Um, And then, yeah, at at that point past that fourth round, or no, that was the second pick in the third um, Rump will have to play some snaps, uh, so that'll probably be, uh, I guess fifteen percent. You know, you can probably you know chuck him in there as one of those guys. And going down the list more, who is the, oh, Brendan Himes would be you know fifth round. Um, I could see him getting snaps in some games. I guess if a guy gets injured, or you know, in the unlikely event he does steal the opening job from Abuji, as we talked about. I think that's pretty unlikely, though. So I'll say, like, somewhere between 0 and 10, just as, like, oh, he has to come in for a couple snaps here and there. Um, And then you're really, yeah, you're talking about Neiman at that point. You're talking about Mark Webb. You're talking about um, Larry Roundtree. Uh, All those guys guys will get some snaps, Um, particularly Nick Neiman will get a bunch of special team snaps, I think we expect. Larry Roundtree also getting special team snaps and in terms of an offensive percentage, probably, I don't know, somewhere between zero and 10 again, like we're, we've kind of been saying. Uh, And then Mark Webb, I actually wouldn't be shocked if Mark Webb had to play a little bit more um, than those two guys, just because the safety room is a little more thin. So, you know, maybe you could say 15% for him. But, yeah, I, other after really the fourth round is when it kind of starts to tail off in terms of the percentages these guys are going to be
2: playing. In the interest of not doing that entire list again, I'll just say that I agree that Mark Webb is probably the guy who sees potentially the most snaps of the ones that are after the first two picks. Um, like I think you said Palmer made 20-something, you know, but like McKitty 30-something. But, you know, Webb, I think the only reason he hits the field is because of injuries, and that's probably going to happen. And so I, I think he'll play the most snaps just because of that. Um, could be round tree. Does anyone remember how, how much how many snaps Kelly played last season?
1: Uh, mm. in the first I, little bit, it was a lot. Significantly, but I think well, overall season, yeah. I probably guess like twenty percent. Uh, I'll look he it up. Right? And
3: yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it he played
1: last like five games, right? Four. Oh,
3: no, I, I, think I, <laughs> I, I think he had four healthy scratches total, but I think he played a little bit in the Chiefs game, the second right. one. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just looked it up. Jo- Actually, Joshua Kelly played 25% of the offensive snaps uh, and 23% of the special team snaps. Um, obviously, we know how that went. But, yeah, so it, about 25% of the offensive snaps. Um, Justin Jackson, 16%. Uh, Austin Eckler, obviously 35 was injured for a couple games. So yeah, those were the top three from last year in the running back room.
1: Um, really the only thing that I'm going to say differently, I, I think Brennan Hymus probably ends up closer to like 2025, just hmm. like he's going to have to make a start or two. Yeah. And you know, yeah, that's, that's 160 snaps right there if he makes two starts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the only thing I think is going to be different. Um, all right, last question here. And again, thank you guys so much for asking these um, you know, thanks for being able to watch our uh, impromptu in-person episode. Hopefully the connection was was okay. Um, last question from Bolt underscore Bo. Which team in the NFL has the ugliest jerseys? So um, that's a really interesting question. I think, like, as a whole, I think every team kind of has at least one good look, in my opinion. My least favorite aspect of any uniform in the NFL are the Patriots shoulder stripes that just have, like,
0: <laughs> There's no
1: reason to <laughs> yeah, have them yeah. and they just like end like right here on the shoulder. They don't like continue all the way around the armpit. So that is my least favorite feature of an NFL uniform. So I guess that's my answer. The Patriots
3: and their ugly wonky shoulder stripes. <laughs> um yeah, I mean the Jaguars are pretty ugly. Um yeah, like yeah. I they have revamped it, but they used to have that, like, ugly golden-black helmet that they yeah. did for a while during that the was, like, Bortles. half and half, right? Yeah, during the Bortles era, that was weird. They did correct that, and, like... The Bortles era. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Teal, and black. Teal and black looks okay, I think, in, in some instances, um, but I don't know, like... I think there's a lot of teams actually that could kind of use a refresher. Like I have actually not loved the Cardinals jerseys. I think that they just kind of look plain. Um, The Jaguars are sort of in that Carolina. I always thought kind of looked ugly. Um, Other than that, I think they all look pretty okay, but I would say those are kind of my bottom three. Um, But yeah, so I would say Arizona, Jacksonville, and Carolina, just all kind of look lame to me.
2: I don't know how you can't pick the Browns. It's literally they're, they're called the Browns. And they're, they're just like a jack lantern and a turd had a baby, and it's like what? What are you doing here? And it's just there's nothing. It's just this orange on their helmet, and like that's it. They're just like some kid was like I don't know, orange, and like you made like your Wii character, and it's like I don't know. This this works, right? This is different colors, and so that's, that's ugly. uh The Rams, white bone, whatever. With oh, like yeah. a Dating name tag. That was horrendous. Um, I think they've updated that. I don't know. They're supposed to. They're like changing.
1: They have. They still do. They're still doing the bone, but they are Uh now introducing a actual white jersey, which is apparently a (laughs) modern throwback. Yeah.
2: Okay. So I don't know. It's weird. All right. Well, there it is. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about the Eagles jerseys, Alex?
3: Yeah. I mean, they've always looked pretty good. Uh, I, I like them the most. I want them to bring Kelly Green back, which Kelly green probably, needs to come back. probably mm-hmm. will help them with the uh, the helmet rule being changed. Um, apparently, they're still rolling with the black alternates, but I, I've always liked them. Um, yeah. I know there's a whole debate about whether Midnight Green should be the color in the Eagles, you know, kind of fan base, but I always thought it looks pretty good. Um, yeah, I would say actually the Rams are pretty bad. Um, you know what? <laughs> they it are is, bad. I, I yeah. don't know if I would put them bottom one as like the worst, but. You know, the only thing that I've said is, like, I don't understand why they just refuse to use the throwbacks now. Like, oh, they, were really? in Los Ange- they were in Los Angeles using them for the Super Bowl when they got there, and then they just decided to completely throw that jersey out. And now they brought back this weird kind of throwback, new updated look that they're using with the white one, like Stephen mentioned. Um, so, I don't know. It's it's a weird kind of thing. I, I, I don't think they should have ever... Change their jerseys, or if they did update them, at least keep the yeah. keep the throwback in the rotation.
1: I mean, I, I like their royal blues. my my complaint, my biggest complaint about them, like Tyler said, is the weird like name tag thing, and yeah. then the glossy numbers is very like yeah. European soccer esque, mm. which I don't love. But I think the royal blues and the all whites that they have now kind of not overcompensate, but I, I think it kind of takes them out of the running of ugliest uniforms. Um, You know, a couple months ago, I probably would have said the Bengals would be in this conversation, too. Oh, yeah. Their orange and black ones were just awful. But I really like the tweaks that they made. You know, I'm if you follow me on Twitter, I've kind of become a uniform snob thanks to the Chargers. But, (laughs) you know, know, I really like the way that the Browns and the Bengals have updated because their uniforms now, they're really cohesive. They're really simple, bold outlines. And so while the color scheme is not, like, my favorite – you know i at least i kind of i know what's going on and it's not you know a ton of question marks in european soccer numbers
3: yeah okay. i thought i thought the browns jerseys looked better than the kind of the ones they had for like the last decade yeah. um cuz they really made them look uh back to the way they did in like the 07 kind of browns teams um you know that sort of era uh and yeah then they had the color rush which i think is a much a uh, better look than some of their other jerseys. It just looks like poop on top, poop on bottom, but at least it's consistent. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, would say, I would say the Browns are not bottom tier, but I would say they're middle. I think they've gotten better, but there's only so much you can do with brown and orange. Yeah.
1: All right, so we'll wrap this up with this. Who are your favorite uniforms? You can obviously say the Chargers, but outside of the Chargers, who are your favorite uniforms in the
2: NFL? Hmm...
3: That's good well, the Chargers. I mean, I mean, are we gonna that's I guess by default, yeah, um kind of number one.
1: I really like the Ravens uniform kits that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say the Saints yep. probably are after that. So top three teams, I would say Chargers, Ravens, Saints.
2: Yeah, hmm. I would have definitely said the Saints in there. Obviously the Chargers. Ravens is a good call. Uh I can't think of another Jersey after that. Like some of the stuff that Steelers does is really stupid, so not them. <laughs> um I like, again like tying back into this god help me. Uh oh, wow. I love the Raiders throwbacks like when oh, they used god. to be all like and like the <laughs> sleeves are all big and baggy and they just as there's something about like the Raiders old school look that I really liked. I am so sorry everyone. I let you all down. <laughs> uh
3: yeah, I would say I would say Chargers number 1. Yeah. 2 and 3. I really like the uh, Packers jerseys. Um I think the green and yellow kind of works. Day. Uh, they're they're a bit classic, and I'll say I'll say the Bills. I'll say the Bills the number three. I, I like what they have done, kind of with the the blue and red um, jerseys, and they sort of have the color rush, which is interesting, and the throwback. Um, so yeah, I mean that's pretty classic in and of itself.
1: Oh, I also just thought of a uniform that I hate. And that's the uh,
3: Seahawks neon green. Mm-hmm. One. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, th- that one's bad and it's bad because the Seahawks other jerseys are pretty good. And then yeah. that one is just like, you know, flaming hot tire on fire. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this has been fun, you know, doing it. Wait, our you guys, episode. you guys, you forgot to ask Tyler's question.
1: Oh yeah. Alex, why are you obsessing over Space Jam? <laughs>
3: So I've been going through Space. Well, so I watched Space Jam too. It was okay, but the whole thing was basically a Warner Brothers ad. I don't know why that was uh, the choice was made there. Uh, it was good though. LeBron was fine, but the original Space Jam is like one of the craziest ideas for a movie that anyone's ever made. Which is just like Michael Jordan and <laughs> Looney Tunes. It just feels like yeah. one of those you know '90s ideas that like wouldn't get made today. That was probably it did
1: you know, some the cocaine.
3: Well, okay, the the sequel is made because of 90s nostalgia and cashing in on the original. But, like, that kind of movie would not get made today because everything is, like, you know, Marvel movies, and that's about it. So (laughs) those are the big blockbusters that come out now, and occasional Star Wars. Um, But, yeah, so, uh, no, I mean, it's one of the movies from my childhood that I really like. I did think the original was better than two, uh, you know, so people, people come at me about that. I don't think it factors into the goat debate. Uh, between wow. LeBron and, and LeBron and <laughs> Jordan, uh, you
1: know. Did you Steven, see on the Did you see at the game yesterday that they put up like the Ron Tomato store of the <laughs> yes. movie while they're showing LeBron? Well,
4: like, that's because on. That's,
3: that's because Disney owns Black Widow, so they they don't want Black Widow to, lose to space jam this <laughs> weekend. So okay. yeah, Disney owns ESPN, so yeah, the whole the whole mafia thing is is kind of happening there. But uh, yeah, I know yeah. Steven Sims for LeBron being uh, the goat on Twitter all the time. Uh, I don't really have my yes. mind firmly made up in the GO debate, but uh, I, yeah, I thought they were both—they were both good. The, the Michael Jordan one will always have a special place in my heart, but uh, yeah, so that's why I've been obsessed. And I was disappointed that in the new one they did not play the original Space Jam theme uh, right. with the Quad City DJs. Uh, that is why it went down from an eight to a seven for me. So, uh, yeah. you know, LeBron, you got—you should have made that decision executively.
1: I mean. I- Cause the space jam two has been in the works forever. Right. And so yeah. I was always worried about like how they would do it and make it really like their own idea. Mm-hmm. So are you going to watch it? No. Okay. So I
2: <laughs> the first one either. Yeah.
1: So they, they kind of take it in like the video game direction. Um, so I, I kind of like the way that they set it up. I thought it was pretty unique and creative. Um, you know, the soundtracks like I thought the soundtrack for the space jam two was fine. Um, I loved the little, like, rap-off with the pig, and (laughs) I thought that part was hilarious. Um, Wait,
4: does he get through it?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Does he really? (laughs) Um, Even better, though, someone uh, interlaced the rap battle from 8 Mile and (laughs) placed it with a video of the pig rapping, which I thought was (laughs) hilarious. Um, But, yeah, the soundtrack from the original was just so, so good. So, like, I guess if you're asking me to compare like that would kind of give the edge, the original. Um, but it was fine. I mean, like, people are so cynical about movies like this nowadays. Yeah. It's, like, it's cheesy. It's corny. It's like, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's made a, it's for movie. kids. It's a movie it's a about movie.
3: how either LeBron James or Michael Jordan has to go to Toon World to play a basketball game against <laughs> aliens. <laughs> right, It's supposed to be that way um but yeah no i i yeah space jam 2 was fine um but yeah i, I always kind of like the original one a little bit better i did i did like what they did in this one with the uh michael jordan cameo i thought that yeah, was fun. that i saw uh I saw yeah that. so that that was a good one i because i actually thought he was gonna come out and you know i'm not gonna get into spoilers but uh yeah that was that was pretty fun
1: yeah i mean overall this one was like a little more funny a little more light-hearted but you know you're paying to go see a cheesy corny movie. like it is what it is like people are trashing them on rotten tomatoes and i'm like if you're going in there expecting some kind of like you know award-winning movie like you're gonna be disappointed like just go <laughs> sit there and have fun like that's what it's about right. um all right well this is an, an awesome experience a little bit of a rocky start getting things set up but you know we had a good time in person and uh thank you guys for tuning in thanks for the questions uh, as always, make sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel, like the videos, comment to us, let us know what kind of terrible takes or good takes that you, we have, um, and make sure and leave us a rating review. Uh, Gee, right yeah,
2: I wonder
3: which one's a terrible <laughs> take. Yeah. I wonder who you're referencing. <laughs> well, you you kind of <laughs> dug yourself a hole there. Okay?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, man, but thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, we are officially 10 days away from training camp. Um, Tyler and I are, are going to meet up next weekend for that as well, so come see us. Uh, most likely on saturday the 31st when uh that's kind of seems like the big day of training camp obviously it opens up on wednesday uh but we will be there that weekend so come say hi and uh we will
2: see you guys next time that's all folks peace nice